Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome. If you are a regular listener to the RC Industry Podcast, you will be aware that I have been talking about the fact I have been writing a book for about the last 18 months. And it's finished. I'm very excited to announce that it has been released today, on the 27th of January 2016. This podcast is not an interview podcast, so if you've downloaded it for that, I'm sorry in advance to have misled you. This podcast is actually the first couple of chapters of the book. I am giving those away for free as a preview of what it is about. It is called How to Make a Living by Working for Free, and it is all about building an audience using free content over the internet, building a community around that free content, and then asking them to support you when you have something to actually sell. For example, a book. If you like this book or you'd like to support me in any way, you can find the book on Indiegogo for the next 45 days. A digital copy is a fiver, and a paperback version is slightly more. Full prices and information is on Indiegogo. If you look in the description of the podcast or the show notes, you can find it in there. If for some reason you want this preview as a PDF as well, you can find that at simoncane.co.uk forward slash books forward slash how to make a living by working for free and there's a link in the show notes for that as well here is your preview of my new book how to make a living by working for free this book is called how to make a living by working for free for two reasons one it's about how you can make a living through free content over the internet two it's a very catchy title Catchy titles are useful in publishing because they capture your imagination and help you, the reader, remember the name. So if it comes up in conversation, you can tell your friends what the book was about and how it helped you. We'll cover how to stand out in someone's imagination later on in the book. Hi, my name's Simon. First of all, thank you for buying my book. It's taken me just over two years to put together, and frankly, it was a long and painful process. So I'm just happy you're finally able to read it, as it's been sitting on my laptop's hard drive for way too long. This book intends to tell you, yes you, how you can make a living by working for free. It sounds mad, but bear with me. In this book, I intend to show you why finding an audience for your work has never been easier, and the secrets behind making that happen. I should just say that the secret is it takes hard work and dedication. Now, uh, where, where are you going? Don't go, don't go, there's, there's more, th- that's the secret, but there's more in this book. You can't leave now, don't, don't go, this has taken me too long to put together. But who am I to write a book telling you how to do this? Well, for the past five years, I've been what is known as a community manager by day, and for the last four years, I've been a comedian by night. A community manager is a not-so-fancy title given to people who manage communities online. A comedian is an equally not-so-fancy name they give to people who tell jokes on stage to strangers. 
In my day job, I've managed large groups of people, written jokes for the web, and made content that has helped grow the communities online of household brands, including Marmite, Haribo, Pot Noodle, Carfem Warehouse, Tesco's. I could go on, but I think I've made my point. I have a particular knowledge base and skill set which has worked for brands all over the world. Now I've taken those skills and applied them to my career as a comedian. Slowly but surely, I'm building my fan base of people who enjoy my work. And as I'm doing that, I'm documenting and learning why and how connections grow online. What you have in your hand, or in your case, your podcast player of choice, is a result of reading excessively about human behaviour, online community building, memory techniques, what it takes to find your audience, and more. In my experiments with social media, I've made gigantic fuck-ups and ruined advertising campaigns, as well as built fan bases which top a million members. I've done it all so you don't have to, but believe me, you will. Finding your feet in social media is a trial and error process, but this book intends to cushion the blow when you inevitably do something that goes wrong and help you to start your own community and momentum around what you are doing to help you gain fans. What you're currently listening to is a customised version of the audiobook. I'm currently crowdfunding the book, which basically means you can pre-order it on Indiegogo. You can find all the links in the description of this podcast. The reason I'm crowdfunding is because my first book, How to Find a Job Using Twitter, was published through a major publishing house about two years ago. I was humbled and excited when they approached me and asked me if I wanted to write a book. But unfortunately... They did everything for me, which meant I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes, and I still have no idea how they took the book from the finished manuscript to press. This was something I wanted to know, and this is something I wanted to be involved in. So this time round, I got myself a publishing deal, and then turned them down. Because I thought, why not see if I can do this on my own? Why not see if the free content that I put out on the internet has built me enough of an audience to see if I can sell the first round of this book on my own? Basically proving whatever theories... Are in the book. My aim with this Kickstarter is to prove that the book is correct and everything in it works. However, if it doesn't reach its funding, it just means I haven't worked hard enough to target the correct group of people who would buy the book if they knew that it existed. I'm very excited about this project and I hope you are as well. Finally, please don't wait until the book is out to steal it. I've decided to release the digital version DRM free and the audiobook the same simply because I want it to be easy for you to put on all your devices so you can consume it in whatever way you see fit. By sending it to a friend, you're losing me money. 90% of everything I make, I give away for free. This means that the few things I need to charge for, there's a reason for that. And as you will see in the book, there's probably a reason why you charge for things as well. I want to keep the cost of things that I sell as low as possible. And in order to do that, I need to have more people buy it. So please, if you are going to send it to someone, please encourage them to buy a copy if they've enjoyed it. Please do me a favour and don't steal the things that I have to charge for. After all, we're all artists and we're all in this together. Chapter 1. How to make money out of your creativity. Most artists focus on the show side of show business. They put all their energy into building, creating and developing something they're proud of. This is not a bad thing. But at the end of the creation process, most artists do not know how to market or sell what they've made. But for an independent artist, making something is only half of our job. The other half is selling and marketing what you've made. Some people think the secret to making money online is ad revenue. But as someone who has worked with advertisers, I can tell you that ad revenue doesn't pay off, even when you have a million hits. In this book, I take all my knowledge and research from the past six years of working in social media and distill it down into what you, an independent artist, need to know about how to build an audience using the internet for your work, why you don't need a million fans to be famous or profitable, why a free view, hit or download does not equal a lost sale, how to sell and market digital content, why you are your own biggest asset, 
Why advertising devalues your content. How to minimize the online pirates. Why giving away a lot of your work for free is a very good thing. Why paywalls are the worst thing online. Why average figures and statistics online are never accurate. And why there's never been a better or easier time to do something you love and find an audience who will appreciate it. But before we go into any of that, we need to look at how artists made money before the internet and what we can learn from that process. A brief history of marketing. From the Middle Ages to Renaissance Europe. The first way an artist would get funding to create art is to be paid by someone who liked what they did. Arts patronage arose arts patronage arts pa- arts patronage arose in European countries all over Europe where a royal family, aristocracy or churches dominated the society and controlled mo- the majority of the wealth. As patrons, the wealthier members of society acted as sponsors to artists and commissioned artwork from individuals they liked. This system allowed artists to continue creating without the need to ever actually sell a physical copy of their work to a mass market. Painters will often only create one version of their painting for a patron instead of today where they need to sell thousands of copies in order to stay out of debt. Case study. Mozart was funded by several wealthy businessmen during his life to create his music. His whole life he was a freelancer, depending on less than a handful of people at any one time. When he was trying to raise money for a project, he often offered backers their name in the program, like an early version of the reward system in our modern crowdfunding. During the Renaissance, the church, royal families and wealthy businessmen patronised many works of art, as this was the norm. We can date European patronage back to the Middle Ages. Without arts patronage, we wouldn't have had some of the most famous works of art from artists including Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo and William Shakespeare. Case study. Leonardo da Vinci depended on patrons throughout his life, all of whom were very wealthy and powerful, including the King of France. One of Leonardo da Vinci's most famous painting, The Last Supper, was created with the backing of an arts patron. The Last Supper is one of the most studied, scrutinised and satirised in the history of paintings and art. Without this one fan, the painting would have never come into being. A modern-day equivalent of this would be for an Arts Council grant. Sadly, these are near impossible to come by in the UK for an individual artist. From around 1900 to the 2000s-ish AD. During this time, companies were developing digital records and methods of experimenting with the different formats. Distribution was limited and a very expensive option for these physical products. However, the technology developed and improved and the cost dropped by the latter part of the 20th century. It was possible for an individual artist to make their art and put it into a physical artifact and sell it to an individual fan. Case study. Rock band Enter Shikari recorded their first three EPs and sold them at gigs with great success. Their fan base was limited to the people they could physically meet. After a few years, they put their music online to be streamed by potential fans, which resulted in them getting a global audience. They continued this strategy for a few years, and when they and when they self-published their first album, it got to number four in the charts. Just a thought. How many bands have you purchased the music of without hearing the music first? Compare that to the number of bands you purchased an album of when you've been given a preview or sample of the song. This could be from an online video on YouTube, or streaming the song on MySpace or Spotify, or going further back from TV programs like Top of the Pops or the radio charts. By sharing your work independently, you're just extending the TV radio model, but you have a lot more control over where it goes. When compared to the patronage system, you can see why this method is much harder for artists to make a living. First of all, it's all about scale. If you have a patron, your funding is secured before you even make your art. 
If you are selling individual copies, you need to sell a certain number of your art or product to be profitable. In order to sell enough copies, you are highly dependent on advertising to get the largest number of people to know your artwork. This has become easier with social media where you can create your own online fan bases to advertise your work to. But we'll get to that later on in the book. With limited and expensive advertising options, including a handful of terrestrial TVs and a dozen radio stations, you need to pay large sums of money to get your advert seen and played. As a result, it was important to pick carefully where you advertised in order to make the most of your advertising budget. The TV and radio channels acted as gatekeepers to whether your advert would get seen by the mass market or not. To help pick where you advertise, you would come up with a target demographic or user. This is often something as vague as mid-twenties male living and working in the city of London, or as specific as men aged 20 to 30 who enjoy jazz music. You might run focus groups or test adverts to see who is interested, but ultimately, but ultimately you would look at who is buying similar products to work out who is most likely to buy your art. By the end of the process, you have a target audience that is so vague that it fits a large number of people that would be interested in buying it, but also a lot of people who are not. Often the product would be targeted at an average consumer who didn't even exist. You would buy advertising slots on TV and radio and interrupt a mass of people enjoying a program to tell them about what you have on offer and try and get more product awareness in the hope that this would lead to sales. Why this no longer works is covered in more detail in Chapter 7, How to Be Unique in Your Field. As the number of TV and radio stations went up, so did the number of programs being transmitted and broadcasted, allowing advertisers to spread their budget across a wider range of audiences who might be interested in buying what they have for sale. TV channels and radio stations needed advertisers to stay in business, so they had to pick programs that would sell the most adverts, but permitted the creative freedom to attract the biggest audiences. TV companies knew this method of product awareness advertising worked because before the internet, content was scarce and people's attention was highly valued by advertisers. Key point, you don't know who is going to be in your audience. You can try and target your audience, but ultimately there will be anomalies. Comedian Andrew Watts took a show up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2014 called Feminism for Chaps. The opening line of the show explained, if you're a woman in the audience, you already know all this. I have nothing for you here. Despite this, they stayed and kept coming and loved it. His show was highly praised and reviewed and got additional dates. His comment, although comical, would never have been accurate. I used to think the demographic for my comedy was students, but a lot of my followers in their 30s and in a career. When you're dealing with a potentially large global audience, you're bound to attract people who don't fit into your perception of your audience. So don't think about targeting, because if what you do is good, the people who are interested will come running. The age of the internet. The dial-up generation. The internet is a free or low-cost distribution network that is open to anyone. An artist doesn't need to convince a TV channel or radio station to showcase their work. You can put it up online for anyone to enjoy. This low barrier to entry means artists can create and share art faster and cheaper than ever. Production costs have also dropped as a result of online global marketplaces like eBay. A musician can buy a second-hand guitar for £20, a camera for 10 and then search online for free tutorials and teach themselves. Within a few hours of practice, you can record yourself covering a song and have, the, have it online for the whole world to see. The problem with such a low barrier to entry is that it has bred a large number of creators and an ever-expanding list of niche interests. This abundance of content has caused artists to share what they do for free to build an audience rather than asking for money up front for what they do. This has caused free to become a commonplace price point for most artists' work. The age of high-speed internet. 
We live in an age where you cannot easily make money by selling what you create. Content is infinitely copyable, shareable, and available online for the entire world. Although the cost of consuming content has dropped to almost nothing or free, the value of that art has stayed the same or gone higher. People are able to connect with the artist on a much more personal level and build long-term relationships easier and faster than ever before. Case study. Dodie Clark, also known as Doddle on YouTube, started posting original music and covers in 2011. She grew her fan base by talking to the people in the comments of her video, as well as the videos of musicians she enjoyed. She started collaborating with massive YouTubers, including Tessa Violet and Hazel Hayes, all of whom have over half a million subscribers. She started a side channel for much more personal videos, which have helped her develop a deeper and stronger relationship with her fans, sharing tour, gig and diary entries about how she's feeling about her increasing fame. By using her YouTube analytics, she found out which city most of her subscribers lived in, and she organised gigs in intimate venues, almost all of which sold out. She has no record label or management. What she does have is an audience globally who, if they can't make it down to her gigs, can give her regular donations in exchange for free videos, or they can buy merchandise, including CDs and T-shirts. We are quickly going back to a world where sponsoring artists or becoming a patron of somebody's work is commonplace and the norm. The difference is, it's not the rich and wealthy individuals who are paying to keep artists creating, it's the general public. Case study. Animator Yatan Perel puts up cartoons on YouTube for free. They've always been for free, and they always will be. He has an audience of over 136,000 subscribers. Instead of putting adverts on his work, he asked them to donate money towards the running cost of the project, if they wanted to. 144 of his superfans now give him $463.53 per animation. This gives him a budget and a wage to keep creating his work. If Yatam makes four animations per month, he is earning $1,854.24 per month. His superfans aren't royalty or mega wealthy businessmen. They are people who appreciate his work, work they would never have had the chance to enjoy or see if he hadn't have shared it online for free. 144 people represents 0.11% of his YouTube audience, and at any point another fan might decide they want to give him money to help him continue to create the animations they love. The power has shifted from the elite rich in society who sponsored one artist a lot of money to the general public who donate varying amounts to the selection of artists whose work they value. This method of making money can be split into two categories, patronage and crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is where an artist asks you to help them produce a project in exchange for gifts instead of the ownership of the final project. These gifts vary, but as a general rule, the more money you give towards the project, the more you get in return as a backer. The main difference between patronage and crowdfunding is that patronage is an ongoing sponsorship for regular work. Crowdfunding is collecting a specific amount of money over and above this for a bigger project. An example of patronage would be fans sponsoring an artist per piece of online content they provide, even though that content is uploaded for free and shared with everyone else in the world. Patronage is different from a subscription model, because a subscription model, the only variable is the number of people using the service, and the number of paying users. To earn more money, they need more converts to pay. Patrons, or superfans, can give whatever they want. Often this offsets casual fans because they're not restricted to donate for a set price for the work the artist creates. Although the subscription model makes it easier to predict revenues and future profits, it is a narrow way of looking at fans. It puts them into a one-size-fits-all box and assumes they all value your work the same. An example of crowdfunding would be pre-ordering an album or DVD 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Or book, in my case, from an artist so the performer could afford to create the final product. The final product might then get released to the rest of the world for free. In this book, we'll look at the methods artists are using to make money when everything or a great deal of what they do can be consumed for free. We'll see how free is not a negative and should actually be looked at as the first step in attracting an audience for what you do. We'll look at why you don't need millions of fans or the backing of a major corporation to be known. There are several methods outlined in this book. You should pick the best few that suit you, your audience and your art. Some methods rely on crowdfunding approach and to get your biggest supporters to pay for the work they value. Other methods focus on building relationships with your audience to create more of the things they love in the logic they will buy merch from you later on. Combining these methods gives you more revenue and decentralizes the money, which means if one person can no longer support you, you're not left with no one to keep you afloat. Ultimately, this audiobook is about helping you, an artist, find an audience for your art and then showing you how to use free online tools to connect with them, build a community around what you want to create in the future, and start making money from what you love. Chapter 2. Aims. What do you want to achieve? Before I begin, I should say that these are guidelines and not strict must-dos. The online marketplace doesn't always behave as neatly as it does in this book. Your fans might be the sort of free thinkers who buck these trends. There's practical advice and case studies, but mostly the knowledge in this book is what you should know, but you don't have to know all of it. Some performers use free content to gave a live, offline audience, and that's enough. Some online video creators use the audience to get a ways to keep creating free content. It all depends on the original artist, which is why having clear goals from the outset is key. You should have a clear aim for what you want before you begin your strategy. You should be as specific as you can be. For me, I'm a comedian. I want an audience to tour a new hour-long show to every year, preferably a good-sized crowd, 50 to 100 people, around 100 nights of the year. I also want to write my own projects like online content, sketches, etc. and write books on marketing and social media. Now it's your turn. Get a pen and a bit of paper, pause this podcast and write down I am a... insert whatever you are here. From my audience, I want... Write four or five sentences on what you would like from your audience. 
This is something we're going to come back to later in the book. You need to be as specific as you possibly can. If you can't think of anything right now, it might be worth you coming back to this book when you are ready to decide what you want. Because without having a clear, identifiable aim, there's really no point in you looking into how to achieve it. Chapter 3. Where are you at the moment? You might have been playing music for years, but only in your bedroom. Or you're a comedian who's been going around and around the circuit for over a decade. This isn't what I'm talking about. I'm referring to you in terms of generating your own audience. Growing your audience will always be part of your work, but depending on what stage you're at will depend on your next move towards the goal you just outlined in Chapter 2. Here are some rough categories. You should slide easily into one or two of the ones below. 1. Under the radar. At this stage you'll be trying to make yourself stand out from the pack. You'll have no audience and even struggle to get your friends and family to come watch you. At this stage you should be working on your art. 2. First noticed. At this stage you've elevated yourself above the pack. You'll have something about yourself and your work which people will be talking about, but you still only have a small core base of fans. You should invest in these people as they invested in you early. 3. New and hot. At this stage, you'll have a base of super fans who rave about what you do, as well as some casual fans who also enjoy what you're about, but who barely spread the work about what you do. You may even get the odd bit of press coverage. At this stage, you should continue to be investing in the early adopters and the people who rave about what you're doing. 4. Peak of potential. At this stage, you'll be getting a large number of exposure equal or in line to the potential growth of your audience. You should continue to invest in your superfans who found you earlier on in your career, as well as talk to and build relationships with the new fans by communicating with them as openly and honestly as you can. This is key, as if you ignore a fan or ruin a potential relationship, it is much harder to get that person back into your audience. 5. Cult Infamy At this stage, you'll have a group of fans who are highly dedicated to your work. You'll also have casual fans, but most of your audience will be die-hard lovers of what you do. You should continue to give back to these people, as that strengthens the bond between you and them, and increases the likelihood of them always being there to support you. 6. Star. At this stage, you're famous. Maybe you're a household name. People want to know who you are and some of what you do, even some people who don't like you. At this stage, you'll need to have a thick skin to ignore the people who'd rather not know you exist. The best way of dealing with this stage is to focus on your core audience and the people who you can develop from freeloader to superfan. Legend. You've been around long enough that you're no longer working on what you do, you just know it and do it. And the things that you're starting to create are turning into a legacy rather than a body of work. Past it. You've had your 15 minutes of fame and now you've still got your core fans, but your level of fame and popularity has started to decline or end completely. To estimate this, and see what size of audience you realistically expect, you need to know about the curve. The curve is a business model that focuses on building a connection with an individual person and letting them pay varying amounts of money to, on products, services and experiences they value. The curve comes in three parts. 1. Using free content to find and build an audience. 2. Using technology to find out what the audience values and move them along the curve from freeloaders to superfans. 3. Using a selection of price points to allow your superfans to spend lots of money on things they value. Finding an audience has always been a challenge to an artist. If nobody knows what you do, how are they going to know if they want or need it in their lives? Your fans are able to get your work for free, legally or illegally, so by sharing it directly with the world, you're able to take control over what's available and the quality at which they see your art. Three is a buzzword that can make artists worry. The reason it makes them worry is because they've been looking at big corporations' sales being hit by internet piracy and believe the news media's conclusion that putting something online for free means you've lost a sale. The Curve looks at it another way. We see free content as a starting point in a relationship with a potential fan and not a lost sale. People buy from people they trust. How else are they supposed to know if they can trust you if they can't preview your work to know that you're good enough to pay for? 
The quicker you lose your fear of free content, the faster you'll start to connect and discover an audience for your work. How many times have you purchased something from an artist without knowing anything about what they do? Unless a close friend made a recommendation, my guess is never. Case study. Musician Alex Day gave away a torrent of his music along with the music videos on YouTube and streams on Spotify so people could hear his music before buying. He gained an audience over a million subscribers on YouTube. He has used this audience to become the Guinness world record holder for the highest charting single by an unsigned artist as well as gain three singles in the top 40 charts. Writer Tim Ferriss gave away large chunks of his book both in audio and written format, so people could see what it was about before buying. He also offered more content as a premium bundle in exchange for a person's email address. All three of Tim's books made it into the New York Times bestseller list. If people enjoy an artist's work, they will support it. It won't be all of them, but you don't need all of them. In the past, in the past, artists needed to appeal to large numbers of people in their local area. Now an artist can appeal to a smaller audience, but the reach can be as much as the global population. If a 100 people downloaded Alex or Tim's bundles. Maybe 50 people enjoyed that content. Maybe 25 people enough to pay for it and the others didn't want to, but told a friend who might buy it. Of course, 25 people liked it enough to pay for it. Maybe 10 of them at best had the money in the bank account and the time coming up in their lives to invest in consuming a product from them. The rest might come back on payday or forget about it completely. A download does not equal a lost sale. Some of the 50 downloads might have loved a copy of their work, but not had the money right away. Others might have enjoyed it, but felt that it was not worth the amount it was for sale for, and so never purchased it anyway. An offline example of this would be when you are given a sample of food at a supermarket. Chances are you won't like the food, but because it's free, you'll give it a go. Even if you don't like it, the chances are you won't buy it there and then. However, next time you have a spare bit of money and fancy a change, which product are you going to pick? The one you know you've tried and liked, or the one you might have to buy a whole pack and hate the taste of? But this doesn't have to be free. Three is the ideal in the curve, but a low price point can also work for artists. Many American performers made digital downloads of their shows available for $5 while still charging $30 or more to a ticket for a live show. When you make music in an internet age, your songs need to be made available for free on YouTube or Spotify as a preview for things that can be purchased like CDs, DVDs or tickets to your show. Some people will buy it. Ultimately, the majority of listeners will consume it for free. To look at a YouTube video and say, a million people watched it, but only a thousand people bought the album, is the wrong attitude. It is based on an arrogant way of looking at each view, like everyone valued it the same way. And every value was, this album is the best album of all time, and I need to buy it now. Which is clearly not the case. You've sold a thousand albums, which is amazing. Appreciate every sale, and do not get tied down to the vanity figures of views because that person who bought it actually valued it at the amount that you think it was valued at by the view. We'll get to vanity figures later on in the book. Free content is not the enemy to your profitability. It's your competition building better relationships with their fans or the audience. It's why some fans will pay £200 on a limited version of a CD they can buy for £10. They feel so connected to that author and creator they want to support them. To understand why the majority of the world won't spend money on what you do, we need to look at the world as a global marketplace. The curve shows that the majority of the world will not pay for what you do, but we know that doesn't matter, because all you need is around a thousand true fans out of the seven billion people living on Earth. With the mass market narrowing or coming to an end, a world of niche interest is fast becoming the norm. Focusing on your audience is much more important than what the rest of the world is doing. It's not a competition. It's about doing something remarkable and interesting. Imagine everyone in the world is standing on a line. I'll be honest, this next bit is a lot easier to read and demonstrate than, say, in audio form. But bear with me, we're going to try and get through this together. Imagine everyone in the world is standing on the line of a graph's x-axis. Just imagine them in one long line. On the left-hand side are your true fans, the backbone of your earnings, and who will pay several times the price of an 
album than a casual fan because it's a limited edition. This is your revenue opportunity. On the right hand side, you have people who don't like what you do and would never pay for it. Alternatively, they are people who don't know what you do and have yet to hear about your work. This is your marketing opportunity. Now, imagine each person has a line coming out the top of their head showing how much they're willing to spend on, on an average year. What you would have is people with a large line coming out of their head on the left-hand side, trickling down to smaller and smaller lines to eventually nothing at the right-hand side. By offering people free content at the tail end, or the right side of the curve, you give billions of people who don't know what you do the chance to sample it and grow as a fan. By offering several price points, or even a pay-what-you-think-it's-worth model, you give fans the freedom to give whatever they feel comfortable with. By putting the power in their hands, you're giving a level of trust with them, which helps build a relationship with that fan. By putting up a paywall, you are restricting the number of people who can discover what you do. We'll discuss paywalls in a massive amount of detail in Chapter 13. Case Study Musician Julia Noons funded her album with the help of just 1,685 of her fans. They raised $77,888. That's an average of $46.22 per backer. Musician Amanda Palmer funded her EP with just 473 fans, who raised $8,581. Cartoonist Alan Becker funded his short animation film, Animator vs. Animation, with just 446 fans, who raised $11,280. All of these people raised significant sums of money through superfans, which they acquired by giving away content for free to build an audience for what they do, and also proving that they're not only able to do it, but they are the only people you can find who do it in the way they do it. By allowing an ongoing relationship with someone in your audience, you keep the door open for someone to help fund a project in the future. You never know who's going to be your biggest fan. In the film Pretty Woman, Vivian Ward, played by Julia Roberts, goes into a shop where sales staff snap at her as someone who cannot afford the clothing. They treat her poorly and she leaves. The next day, after spending what looks like thousands of dollars on clothing, she storms into the shop and asks the sales assistant if she works on a commission. When she confirms that she does, Vivian holds up 20 bags of branded clothing and yells, Big mistake! and storms out again. You never know who's going to be your biggest fan. Case study. Every year I organise an online collection for a homeless shelter using various online forums I admin. I ask everyone, if they can afford it, to donate £1 or more. Last year one person donated anonymously £200. We raised a little over £1,100 in total. This person lives in one of my online forums, but I have no idea who it is, but I know they're there. They obviously contributed a significant amount towards that end fund versus what most of the other people gave. But you treat everyone the same, because everyone has their own value. When online cartoon Cyanide and Happiness did their Kickstarter, they offered one fan to fly with a friend within the US only to Dallas to the Banana Bar Crawl. They'll put you up in a hotel near the event and give you a banana costume a crown, a crown, a scepter, a royal throne, your own personalised page will announce you at every bar and take care of your drinks, and a surprise or two, for $10,000, one person purchased it, a super fan that loves their work so much, they're willing to pay a premium to spend time with the artist and fund future creations. If you think of freeloaders on the right hand side of the curve as potential converts or fans, you stop seeing them as freeloaders costing you money with nothing in return. You'll, you see them as a targeted marketing opportunity that you can seek out. Remember, every superfan was once a freeloader. Variable price points are when you give fans multiple levels at which to financially support you. This is giving fans the total freedom to show you how much they value your work. Because art touches everybody in a different way, you could never be 100% sure what everyone values your work at. 
it could be nothing or it could be much more than you ever would expect a single person to pay for it. Fans of your music might want to give £50 for an album even though they're used to spending £10 in shops because they feel a connection with you and they know how much time and effort you've put into making the free content they've enjoyed. The internet has made variable price points for products and merchandise a lot easier for both the artist and the fan. Case study. The makers of the Pebble Watch found 68,929 backers and raised $10,266,844 to put their watch into production. Within that funding, they were able to offer fans the option of giving the company $1. In exchange for their $1, the back gets, and I quote, exclusive updates on product developments, aka a monthly newsletter. That sort that most people consider quite annoying and send to their trash folder without even reading. 2,615 people did it. Later in the book, we'll discuss the difference between permission and interrupt marketing, which explains why people will pay to sign up to a newsletter. Comedian Ron Letcher made a documentary about his experiences of being a stand-up on the bottom rung of the ladder. So he raised $1,084 through 37 backers. Two people gave him $1 in exchange for Facebook and Twitter thanks. Four people gave him $5 for a credit in the film. Two people gave him $5 in exchange for, and I quote, Ron will write your name on a piece of paper and give it to a stranger. The list goes on and on. If you have a good idea, take it to the crowd and let the free market do the rest. The reason big corporations are doing badly, or worse than they used to, is because they're still marketing to everyone in the world, which costs a lot of money, because they don't know who will be interested in what they're doing. These ideas tend to be unadventurous and boring. Big corporations fear free because they've never had to market products in this way. Faceless corporations struggle because people buy from people, and the opposite of a trustworthy human that you've made a strong connection with is a faceless big business. Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, I can't express how happy and humbled I am that you would even take the time to download it, let alone listen to it all the way through. So if you're listening to this, thank you very much for doing that. I really hope you enjoyed it. I really hope you got some value out of it. I am so proud of this book. It's taken me two years to write and it is finally finished. It feels really weird to say. Um, I got offered a publishing deal and I turned it down because it was a rubbish deal based around what I got told from a literary agent friend of mine and I thought instead of trying to find another one I would essentially do what the book told me to do which was use the audiences that I've been building and ask them if they want to support me and keep me creating stuff so if you're enjoying the podcast you'll enjoy the book the book is about everything we talk about in the podcast so the industry side of comedy trying to build your own audience trying to elevate you forward into your own career path and what you want to do and it sort of gives you the background the marketing theory and a blueprint onto how you can create your own audience around what you do what you want to create and then how that audience can sustain you so if you're listening to this because you are a member of the podcast elite and you are the people who have found me through free content that is the first part of the book proven right there and if you are someone who is thinking about moving forward in your own career and is thinking about trying to start building your own audience and you want to know the theories and tools and techniques behind what i've done and what many other people have done i've interviewed loads of people for this book and it's got great case studies in it then you can buy this book, have a look and see the patterns emerging around the most successful people who have created their own audience through free content. Can't say more than that. I'm going to go, but if you've enjoyed this and you'd like the book, please look in your podcast player, the description of the show. It will be in there. If not, if if you go to Indiegogo.com and you type in how to make a living by working for free, you should be able to find my book in there. 
and it would be great if you bought a copy. There are early bird specials, which means that if you buy it early, or you're one of the first batch of people to buy it, you actually save a bit of money as well. So if you get in soon, you'll be able to get one of those. That would be amazing. If you would like to give me any feedback, you could email me on simon.m.kane at gmail.com, or tweet me at this made me cool. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for buying my book if you do. Every little bit helps, and it really does help me continue to create these and other things. So thank you very much. See you next week with a brand new podcast. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.